Getting better acquainted, sister show, Stand Up Tragedy is going up to the Edinburgh Festival. We're going to be doing an hour of tragedy every day as part of the PBH Free Fringe at the Banshee Labyrinth Banqueting Hall from the 2nd till the 24th of August. If you're in Edinburgh, come along and see the tragedy. Also, getting better acquainted for five days only, we'll be doing live conversations at the Royal Oak at 3.15pm every day from the 18th till the 22nd of August. So come and get better acquainted at the Edinburgh Festival. As boys, a lot of us kind of define our relationships by the relationships you see at home. And as a 12-year-old, the relationship I saw at home was that my mother was somebody that was sick and needed help, and then she wasn't there. And I think that's had a knock-on effect on the relationships that I don't have as an adult. It meant I certainly have to grow up a lot faster. You've got this defined point of, you can say, well, I guess that's where my childhood ended. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Harv. Hello, Harv. Hello. (laughs) So the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Uh, just after I've moved to London, I replied to an ad for a sound engineer for a band, and it was your band, it was Apples for Everyone. That's right. Not very many bands have a sound engineer as part, like, as part of the band. No. I kind of wanted that band to be different in that respect. It was certainly different. <laughs> <laughs> there was a few of us. There were two sound engineers when you first joined. Yeah, at the start, two of us turned up on the same day. Right. Me and Shameen. Yeah, and my approach to auditions was always just to say yes to everybody, which is not to say that you aren't excellent. <laughs> <laughs> but that was something I only came to learn over time, I think. And with, with a lot of apples, w- was yeah. the case. But initially, it was the idea was just sort of say yes to everybody and see who sticks. Yeah. And you, you stuck the whole the whole way, the whole way through the whole yeah. band. Right until I, right until we split up. There was a lot of you having to come into rehearsals and just sit there for hours on end watching everybody else play music. Yeah, especially at the beginning until you, until everyone sort of got used to setting their own levels and stuff in rehearsals. But yeah, at the beginning it was turn up every week. Right. That was a good thing anyway, because I mean, I just moved down into town and didn't, didn't know anyone around town anyway. So. Okay, so did you just moved to London when you sort of joined Apple then? Yeah. Ah, that <laughs> makes sense. I didn't know that. I guess I always just assumed that everybody that was joining Apples was like a Londoner, you know? Because I'd, I'd moved to London and it was yeah. a year after that I set up Apples. No, I think I, saw, I was in a backpackers hostel like the week I'd moved out. And I was still there when I answered the ad, so... Wow. So did you move to London to, to be in a band? To be in a band and to get more sort of sound engineering work and that kind of thing. Like there wasn't anything musical going on in town at home and certainly nothing that was going to get me any work that's right because where you're from you're from Hemel yeah I had a list of things I was going to talk to you about and what I managed to do is delete them just before I started recording so I'm hoping I can remember some of them but I know that the first thing on that list was growing up in Hemel so uh, it seems an appropriate time to bring that up 
Yeah, I didn't really grow up in Hemel. I grew up in Bovingdon, which is a little village outside it. Oh, right. Which was, yeah, it was all right. It was kind of half the village's sort of traditional villagers that have obviously lived there for generations, and it's like farming community type stuff. And then the other half is all commuters. It's like a dormitory village for commuters for London because it's just outside the M25. Right, interesting uh, which, mix. Yeah, kind of leads to a bit of weirdness. It's like there's a main road that goes down the village and there's massive houses on one side of it and then all council estates and stuff on the other side. And on the other side. You sort of grew up in a place with nothing much to do, right? Yeah. I it mean, just wandering around fields and getting drunk a lot. <laughs> I guess when you were a teenager that must have been like really shit, I guess. Or did you find the entertainment regardless? We, we kind of found, found our own entertainment. There were 13 pubs in the village. It was quite a small village, but there was like every, pretty much every other place on the high street was either a pub or like there was an Indian restaurant that had a bar as well. And there was a bowls club that had a bar and a football club and a cricket club. As soon as I hit the age where you can go out drinking, that's pretty much what things revolved around. And there's an old World War II airfield up there that we used to hang about in playing in the old control tower and that kind of thing. Oh, wicked. That's a pretty cool place to hang out. Mm. Was it like, was it pretty rough though? If that's the right word rough. for it. No, not really. I can't remember. There wasn't sort of much violence or anything <laughs> like that. It was boring more than anything else. There'd be a rock club once every two weeks up in Hemel in the town. That, you could go to but I don't remember it being rough you'd have like the kind of cliques in the village like townies or whatever and then metalers and then, yeah, you're, yeah you were a metaler right yeah I was a metaler <laughs> yeah people can't see you so they won't know I should explain in the background sound is the Thames it would be picturesque but the tide's kind of in so we're just sort yeah. of sitting on some concrete steps by some water and the water is very brown it is brown yeah <laughs> right yeah, so you were a metaller in Hemel. Mm. Did that sort of set you aside in the community or did that... Not so that much, okay? we're, talk, we're talking sort of early 90s, which was, it was like Nirvana and grunge was becoming popular. Like everybody was kind of going that way, apart from the townies and sort of Ben Sherman shirts in, and puffer jackets and that kind of thing. But it, it never really felt that it set, set you aside in general maybe set you against other groups but there was always enough of us to feel that you weren't the only one in the village yeah i mean i guess that's different when you come to london yeah but everybody's different here everyone's everyone's like in a completely different group so it kind of there, there isn't the groupiness i think no and you, you can whatever whatever you're into you can find people that are going to be into the same thing right and everyone's used to hanging out in like a group of very di different people yeah. right which is one of the things that apples was as a band it was a group of very different yeah. people with some common interest which was music but yeah i think you get less cliquey as you get older anyways in general yeah that's about right it depends on you but like if you've gone away from home you'll tend to get less cliquey i would guess if you've been if you've been stuck in the same place your whole life and yeah. you've known the same people and you just carry on knowing the same people but as soon as you go somewhere new it changes right that's true the second question i ask everybody is what do you do now for a living i teach music production in a further education college 
and do a bit of learning support on the construction courses, which is a bit of a strange juxtaposition. And then in spare time I do like shows like Stand Up Tragedy with you. And yeah, that that's right. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're my sound, sound, sound engineer, engineer for Stand Up Tragedy now. Uh, yeah, we, I guess we've been working together quite a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Harvey's definitely someone I would recommend as a sound engineer as well if anybody wants to employ him to do that. Yeah, so I guess, like, is it fair to say that you have a working class background, I guess? Yeah, it is. Uh, my mother was the warden in an old people's home and my dad worked in a daycare centre for elderly people with Alzheimer's. So, yeah, pretty working class. Pretty working class. And we, we, kind of, we sort of lived in at the place my mum worked until she stopped working now got ill but yeah working class background and uh, your parents parents as well were, were quite I remember you saying at some point were quite working class as well like uh, yeah my my on my dad's side of the family my, my granddad did kind of loads of things he was a baker and then he was a soldier through the war right um, but he was a baker in the army through the war and then he, he was quite well off when he came back because he'd been um, he was in the Territorial Army and he get, got called up from the Territorials in at the start of the war. But then, because they lived in the Channel Islands and that was occupied by the Germans, couldn't go home till the end of the war. So, with most of the Territorial Army, they they kind of let them go home and then reconscripted them on lower pay. But they couldn't do that with him because he couldn't go home. So, at the end of the war, he had all these masses of Territorial Army pay. Uh, so he like, started a company, ran a haulage company for a bit until that went bust and then worked on the docks. Right. I mean, do you have like an identity like based around that or is that kind of seem quite remote to you now? All of that sort of, both, both generations before you? Uh, uh, yeah, a lot of it seems quite remote. I, I guess some, it's probably, it's added to my identity somehow, but <laughs> I, yeah. Certainly the living in Guernsey thing is it's nice to go back to and I, I did a lot of growing up over there like in summer holidays and things. Right. But I'm not sure how much of my identity is based on that kind But I mean also like not just uh, Jersey, I mean like working class is that, working is class that something definitely, that you definitely say yeah. is your identity. People don't like the people to use the terms working class these days. No. It's like it's, it's, some people sort of see it as like I don't know. Like we, we shouldn't mention any of the class distinctions. Yeah, know. or if, if you do, everyone's supposedly middle class right now. So, I mean, I went to university and for a lot of the time I do, in that I work in education, I do a kind of middle class job, but my income bracket puts me squarely in the working that's, class. That's very true. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you're actually going to be living on a beach. Yeah, uh, for the next month or so. Right, which is a very... Uh, <laughs> It's a very sensible solution to a problem, yeah. but it's not an approach that many people would take, I think. No. I'd rather be in a position where I didn't have to do it. If my, if my income was secure, it would be great. But um, I've, been, I've been without a fixed address before, and I've done staying in youth, hostel, youth hostels and things. And I think doing it makes you less scared of having to do it. Right. So if I'm having problems with a landlord, now that I've done, done that kind of thing, I'm less worried about oh what happens if they kick me out I won't have any it's kind of I kind of know well if they worst comes to the worst I'll be alright kind of thing yeah and they sort of don't have any power over you because of that yeah which is a, a good a good approach 
I mean, like, what would you just say you are politically, like, if you had to define um, yourself? Politically, I would say I'm an anarchist. <laughs> <laughs> like, I like forcing people to have to do that, because that's, that's what I have to say yeah. if, if I'm pushed. And it's always nice to know that there's a few more of us around. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think there's more of us around than, than we, we get credit for. I think it's difficult having a set of political opinions that automatically when you express them to people the term that you have to use to express them to people makes people think ah you're a nutcase right 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 um, which because of the press that anarchism had over the years that's what it kind of does but a lot of people once you explain actually what, what, you, what you mean oh yeah that kind of makes <laughs> sense kind of. and how would you describe your anarchy um, <laughs> it's a weird word to use in this kind of way yeah. isn't it i think <laughs> I can't see the need for a state in an ideal world. I think the main purpose the state serves at the moment is to protect us from the excesses of the rich. And it doesn't do a very good job at that right. because the state's owned by the rich. And it's in this constant conflict of, it's, it's trying to make, make the rich and powerful as rich and powerful as it can. But at the same time, make things nice enough for the rest of us that we don't kick off so that's kind of my view on the state my view on the way anarchy could work is okay you haven't got you you wouldn't have a police force to enforce laws but most laws aren't enforced by the police anyway most laws are enforced by people's common decency i don't go out and murder people on the street not because uh, i'm afraid of getting arrested and put in prison but because going out and murdering people on the street is a shit thing to do. And I think most people are along those lines. It's not like if the, if the cops were suddenly removed overnight, we'd all be running about killing each other. I think generally we help each other out. Yeah, it's interesting. I think as well, like, um, a lot of the violence that does happen is as a result of, uh, of systems of control right yeah, yeah like, where, where you do see violence that where people do murder people on the street often it's like it's state created in some way yeah a lot of it's it's either it's either related to poverty or it's over fights over who controls supplies of substances that the state has decided that we're not allowed to buy openly like drugs or whatever uh, and if that if that control was removed a lot of those crimes would be necessary right I mean, I, I yeah, it's always, it's, it, it, there's, there's not, there's never very much, uh, it, it's always interesting when, you know, people agree with each other, people don't necessarily, <laughs> like, yeah, you're absolutely right, and, uh, but, uh, but that's the way it goes. When you think of yourself as kind of working class, though, I mean, do you identify, like, do you sort of, how do you feel about the classes? I mean, how do you feel about the middle classes? Like, you know, I, I have to identify myself, I guess, as middle class. I, th- I think <laughs> in a lot of ways, middle class is an artificial distinction. I think there's only really two classes, and that's people that have to sell their labor to survive or rely on state benefits when they, when they can't sell their labor, and people that survive by profiting off the labor of others through being a landlord or through being, um, in banking and collecting interest on loans and I think a lot of the the thing with the middle class is it's basically either upper class people that have slipped in their income or it's working class people that have got just enough to they need something to make themselves feel better about not being the lower dregs of society anymore. right and it's kind of a buffer for the ruling class to say well you're better than them 
you're you're more like us than you are like them. Yeah. No. I again, I agree. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I I. And I, th- I think that's a big part of the problem for me. That the middle classes and the working classes just need to sort of see see some common common causes. Yeah. I mean, all of these divisions, whatever it is, like class or uh, race or gender or whatever, like if people can see the common cause and see that they're both sides are being manipulated, then uh, then we could get some kind of I don't know some alternative. I mean, do you believe that there's an alternative that could be could actually happen? Like, because you're a very practical, realistic person. Um, I think it could happen. I don't know how. Um, certainly, in, ter- in terms of disseminating in- information, like the internet's a great thing, but obviously the state's doing as much as it can to restrict what information we can get on the internet. And in terms of it actually happening, I think there's there's lots of kind of good movements that are trying to make things practically happen. Um, but equally, there's lots of very popular, populist right-wing type organisations right. that are trying to keep the divisions at the forefront of people's minds. And because of the way the mass media works, that's that's the information that everybody hears. Yeah. Or misinformation that everybody hears. Yeah. Right. Misinformation for sure. I don't think it can happen without a fight. Uh, I think at the first sign of their power being under threat, we'd see a lot more state violence. Uh, I certainly don't think things could change drastically through peaceful means. Do you think we're sort of seeing that kind of slight change now? I, I feel like we are a little bit. Yeah, we're seeing more and more, especially on the side from the state, we're seeing more and more militarisation of the police. I think like with Boris buying the water cannon recently. Right. And they seem to be gearing up for that. They're certainly um, policing protests in the yeah. capital harder than they've done in a long time. Yeah, they, they seem to be gearing up for actually this could kick off, but it doesn't really seem like the other side, like we, I suppose, are gearing up for that <laughs> to <laughs> much of an true. extent. It's, a, we're, we're, true. It's, it's still very much peaceful protest, peaceful protest, and then the police turn up and trap everybody in the street and hit a few people with sticks. But then the only way you can gear up for that is to talk about being ready for a food like violence and that's a bit unpalatable, nobody really wants to right. be doing that. You come off as a bit of a nutter and I'm not sure I'd want to be associated with people that were specifically planning for violence, violence even if I agreed with the ends that they're right. looking for. That's definitely the problem I have. I mean, I'm kind of squarely in the peaceful protest point of view but so i wouldn't want to be associated with anything that was going out intending to be violent right. but it is complicated because if you are attacked then i mean i do believe i believe in self-defense yeah so it's complicated when does when does when does self-defense in a in a protest situation become you know attack you know it's problematic yeah i think <laughs> sooner or later we're we're going to see the police employing live ammunition at a, at a protest. And I think at that point, it definitely, the minute there's live fire involved, at that point, it becomes it becomes self-defense. Right. But I think 
to have any kind of legitimacy at all in it. It's got to be the state that starts the shooting, not... Right, agreed. I mean, I, I definitely agree with that, yeah. I'm trying to work out how to hold them. This is, this is like the first time in, in getting better acquainted history I've done this, I think. I'm always smoking cigarettes and I'm always occasionally holding my... Oh, uh, yeah, good idea. You can you roll me a fact. That would be great. There's my, there's my backy. <laughs> I was trying, uh, listeners, to roll a cigarette at the same time uh, and hold a microphone and record. That's not the general view of somebody that's grown up in Hemel, though, is it? I mean, no. I guess it's not the general rule for somebody that's grown up in the places I've grown up to become an anarchist either. Why do you think it happened to you? <laughs> I think... Some of it came from, or a lot of it came from just generally being a musician and liking like punk music and issues around like punk music and DIY ethic and actually we don't need state or corporations to do this for us. Some of it came from jobs that I've done in working in bars and restaurants and being a hotel manager and coming to a point where I had to decide if I wanted to, to continue in the job not only was I going to have to continue sucking corporate cock, but I was actually going to have to eventually become the corporate cock that was getting sucked and <laughs> kind of taking the decision not to be in that position. And that kind of led to me being fairly sort of anti-corporate and anti-capitalist and then looking for other ways to do it. And Okay, well, what about communism? Communism seems to have fundamental flaws in the idea that it's, you have a group that wants, to, wants power enough to seize it but then is somehow going to magically let it go a couple of years down the line. Right. And no one that wants power enough to seize it is, is ever going to let it go. If you want to get rid of power, you've got to get rid of power, not have some kind of interim stage. And I think reading, what's it, Illuminatus trilogy, stuff by Robert Anton Wilson, led to me thinking, actually, while the book's pretty crazy, some of these ideas kind of make sense. Is that science fiction? Uh, yeah, it's sort of science fiction, fantasy type strangeness. It kind of, it tries to link all the conspiracy theories of the last sort of 30 years or so before the book was written and makes them quite surreal and brings in stuff about Eris, who's the Roman goddess of chaos. And oh, cool. It, does, that sounds, it yeah. sounds up my street, actually. That's interesting. It, 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 was, it was fiction that brought me to it, like... To, to, to the conclusion of anarchy as well. Like, yeah. I, I was, it was the dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin and uh, V for Vendetta by Alan Moore, the yeah. cliche. I wish that hadn't become the symbol in the way that it has become because it, it doesn't seem like, I don't know. It, it's unfortunate because, I mean, V in V for Vendetta isn't a classical anarchist because he, start, he starts a sort of movement that's very much about him. And he's kind of more sort of individualist terrorist and really being... Sort of, but then, like, spoiler alert, when he sort of, like, that's for the initial part of the anarchy. But then, the then, second then, part, then right. at the end, I've, not, I've only seen the film, I've not read any of the books. But oh, haven't I, you? I've read the, yeah, I haven't seen the film. But it, in, <laughs> I know in, in the film, he kind of starts this movement and then sort of sacrifices himself to right. kill the... Chancellor or whatever it is, and the head of the security service. I mean, the idea is you, if you, 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 to do that, you are putting yourself into a position where you're going to be a terrible person to be in yeah, charge. Yeah. So you have to kill yourself yeah. in order to in order to make those changes. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily advocate 
uh, going towards anarchy in the in the way that V for Vendetta does no. it in that book. But that book <coughs> really goes through the theory of it yeah. very well and uh, taught me a lot of the theory. And Ursula Le Guin's Dispossessed imagines what an anarchist's future could, could, could exist like. Have you read that? I've not, I've not read that. I'll tell you, the other book that kind of led me to that, to the anarchist worldview, was actually Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Right. Well, I have... Um, the universe in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is ruled by one man. But he doesn't know he rules the universe. He just lives alone on this planet with his cat and talks to his cat. And people come and see him every now and again and ask him about stuff. And he gives them the answers that he thinks his cat would give. And they go off and do it. It's, the idea is that anybody that wanted to rule the universe wanting to rule the universe would automatically make them unfit to actually rule the universe yeah so they just have this guy that lives in a shed shed on this planet somewhere that doesn't know what's going on that just gives like whatever answer springs to mind when people ask him for stuff if there's going to be power centered anywhere that's the kind of best place best sort of place for it to be centered for sure it's a good rule to to follow that anybody that wants power is (coughs) is slightly questionable yeah Although, I mean, I guess it's kind of human to want some power over your own existence. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know. Power over your own existence is one thing. Everybody should have, yeah. like, pretty much complete power over their own existence. But right. that stops when you yeah, infringe a, on anybody else. Yeah, there's a great phrase that I like. My right to swing my arm yeah, stops, ends, ends when, the, yeah, the, when it connects with your face. Yeah. You were a chef. Yeah. Not, not in the kind of fancy big hat sort of sense it was a kind of industrialized sort of chef yeah it was branded restaurants so it's sort of brakes brothers kind of production kitchen food that comes in a bag and then steaks uh, which was most of it and sort of pubs and by beef eater type places and premier premier right and that's quite a hardcore lifestyle from what i remember you, you talking about it it's long long hours Irregular hours. You'll have days off on the rotor, but you you, they never, they rarely happen. So it becomes very difficult to make any kind of plans or have any kind of life. And the wages are quite low. Uh, and your social life in that environment ends up revolving around getting drunk with whoever else is off at the same time, um, like the people that you work with, which can, yeah can be quite interesting but also you, it means you just end up spending time with people that you wouldn't choose to spend time with right if you were I don't know free <laughs> I guess right. yeah and like didn't you have to like sort of there was you worked in hotels and stuff so there's lots of like sleeping like yeah, in the well, corridors and sli- uh, sleeping in linen rooms I did quite a lot when I was chefing in hotels just I, I finished dinner service at about 11 o'clock and then you'd be on for 6am for breakfast and if it was going to take like an hour or so to get home uh, a lot of the time the, ki- the kitchen staff would just put up Z beds in one of the laundry rooms and sleep in the laundry room before breakfast the next day Jesus, and not go home for sort of three or four days so it pretty much took time. over your life in yeah. a way like which and that's the thing that people don't realise I think about those kind of jobs like they keep people in them by yeah. the fact that they don't give you any time to exist apart from within the job. No, so, so you've not got you've not got any time to go out and look for other stuff. You've not got not really got any time 
to even sort of stop and think about what you'd rather be doing. Right. You're just doing that, doing that, doing that. And everything ends up revolving around work. And it really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and like you said, uh, like it's a hierarchy too, right? So you started at the bottom, I guess. Yeah, I started uh, washing dishes, sort of, when I finished my GCSEs. So 16 sort of washing dishes and my name for maybe about six months was glasses. Because <laughs> you've got glasses. But you've got long hair too. Yeah. So you, they, they just chose on the glass, they picked yeah, on the glasses. Chose, yeah, that's what we'll pick on. That's, and it's kind of, you're the lowest of the low, so you get picked on for until a new lowest of the low joins and then it becomes your role to kind of join in picking on them. And that kind of works all the way, can work all the way up. Uh, so I started washing dishes, then ended up on grill, uh, then was head chef for a bit, uh, um, uh, travelling, then went to uni and did sort of various casual catering stuff. I mean, the, the other problem with catering work is that any town you go to, there's always going to be that kind of work going. So it becomes very easy to think, oh, I need money and just fall back into the trap of doing that job. Right. Wow, that's a big sound. The pride of London boat <laughs> is passing us. As a, it looks a bit ragged and scruffy, I think. Right. Yeah, I, illusions of grandeur in the name. It kind of does look like the pride of London because people don't have very much pride in, <laughs> yeah. in some ways. When you were the head chef, like, did you did did, that, did you become the enemy, or did you try to change the system from within? I, I became the enemy to a certain extent. I know I was only sort of eighteen, so I was fairly young and impressionable, and that's the sort of environment that I trained in. So I was, um, yeah, to a large extent, I became the enemy. So it was picking on the junior kitchen staff, uh, bullying, basically like whipping with towels and giving shit jobs to people to do and uh, shouting at and making waitresses cry and all that kind of thing. Uh, the, I mean the other problem with it was at the time that I was starting working in that environment Gordon Ramsay was become, just becoming famous so everybody sort of wanted to be Gordon Ramsay so you had all these chefs, yeah, chefs in these places that are basically just microwaving food and chucking it on a plate so they haven't got the creativity or the actual cooking talent that Ramsey has, but they was still wanted to do all shouting and swearing. And I, I did become that. Working in that environment made me a far, far more angry and horrible person than I than I enjoy being. Yeah, because you're very chill. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Generally speaking, and, and and like working in Apples, you had like loads of mayhem always going on, and you were like generally the calm in the middle of this storm. That's like one of the one of the great qualities I think yeah. you bring to stuff. So it's interesting that you like had this kind of moment when you were like young, where you had you you were the, the opposite of that. Yeah, yeah, like shouting, screaming, swearing. And, and you're like a nice guy as well. I mean, I know that's I mean that you wish you shouldn't say that about yourself, but I can say yeah. that. So it's, it's it's again, it's interesting to me that you like had to cross that, that boundary. I mean, how did you how do you feel about that now? I guess not particularly not particularly proud. I mean, the best thing to come out of it is that I can cook and like cook proper food but um yeah i wouldn't want to wouldn't ever want to go back to it and 
so, some of the things I said to people, the ways I acted to people, towards people at the time, look back on it and I can't imagine acting that way, acting like that now, or wanting to. I think if I if I went back now and I'd known myself then, I think I was a bit of a twat, really. Right. I've definitely been a twat in my past. Yeah. I mean, everybody has, right? The important thing is noticing it, right? So you don't yeah. do it again. But like, so you were 18 when you were a head chef. Yeah, it? yeah, I would have been. So had you worked like when you were you worked when you were a teenager then? Together? Yeah, I I finished my GCSEs and my dad did the classic sort of right. You finish compulsory school, get out of the house and get a job, and brought this application form for this restaurant in home. Uh, so I filled it out and he took me down there to hand it in, and I got. They, they gave me this job washing up and I was there for the first few weeks of sixth form I was there five nights a week until it became obvious that I was not going to pass my A-levels if I was also working six till eleven five days a week right. in a restaurant so that went down to sort of three days a week and then went full time as soon as I went on study leave for A-levels so I was doing my exams at the same time as working full time in the restaurant and just kind of going to school doing the exam coming back and working and then took a year out between A-levels and uni and the idea was to work to earn some money and travel but I ended up just working to earn some money and spending the money that I'd earned. Right. And that during that year was when I was working as a head chef. And it, I mean, it was basically by default I'd got a job in a place and the guy that had been head chef left and I was the only other person there that could have done the job so you know, I got the job and that was the That's way it worked. So many jobs go that way yeah. I think. You went to work when you were a teenager, I guess, yeah. to get to bring the mon some money into the family, or just for you? Uh, just for me, really. Nice. Yeah. That's what I did as well, um, but not as hardcore as yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> my housing and my food and stuff was going to be paid for, but it was very much like, if I wanted any other money past that point, it needed to be money that I'd earned rather than money that I was getting given. Right. That's... You know, that makes, yeah. that makes sense. Do you think that makes sense? Yeah, I think it totally makes sense. It's a bit annoying, but... Yeah. <laughs> right. But, yeah, but having to work for money is still a bit annoying, so... Right, it and, it was, like, and it was just your dad at that point bringing in the money anyway, right? Yeah. So, like, so I guess that's the thing, like, so you referred, referred to this slightly earlier on, um, that your, your mum got sick when you were growing up. Yeah. So, like, how old were you when that happened? Uh, I think I would have been probably about 11 when she first got sick. She um, she had stomach cancer. First, I thought it was a stomach ulcer, uh, and she'd been on medication for stomach ulcer, which seemed to be working, and then it suddenly kind of stopped seeming to be working. And she went into hospital and was diagnosed with stomach cancer. So they removed her stomach, uh, and... As far as they were concerned, she was all right, but what they don't tell you when they do a gastrectomy for stomach cancer is that it will always come back. Right. And when it, when it comes back, it always comes back in the liver. And when it comes back in the liver, it's all, almost always terminal. But the reason they don't tell you that is because it can come back sort of 30, 40 years down the line, or it can come back really quickly. And if they told you it was going to come back every time you got ill, you'd think, oh, I've got, it's, the cancer's come back. I'm... So they don't, they don't really tell you it. Uh, but in mum's case, it came, it came back in about maybe uh, seven or eight months. So I think she, she had the gast gastrectomy in October 92, 
and went into hospital again with a liver infection uh, April 93 and was diagnosed with it it come back in the, it come back in the liver and then she was on chemo for about six months and she died in May 94 so I would have been 12 when she died I mean that was tough I guess I mean obviously yeah <laughs> I can't imagine it would not be tough for anybody in some way and it must have been tough for your dad I guess yeah It's, it's always hard, yeah it's hard to say I mean obviously I'm sorry for your loss but it was ages ago yeah. and it's a cliche to say sorry for your <laughs> loss so it's, it always feels weird I mean did, did that affect your kind of school life or like home life or uh, it's certainly yeah it certainly affected our home life I mean aside from anything else it meant we had to move house we lived in with my mum's job oh right okay and as soon as when she had when when she had the gastrectomy and they thought she was going to recover, it was all right. She was off sick, but as soon as they said actually it's terminal, she had to take retirement on health grounds, uh, which meant we couldn't live in a house anymore because it came with the job. Fortunately, because she worked for the council, uh, it was written into her contract that if for any reason she had to leave the job, um, other uh, probably any reason other than gross misconduct, but she, if she had to leave the job they had a responsibility to houses, so we've got a council, council house in the estate a bit further, in the estate sort of across the main road, so right. we were at least housed. But we had to move, which was a bit weird, because it meant I got a much bigger room than I had. Right. So, it, it, in this kind of strange position where I've got this much bigger room and all this cool new stuff to go in the much bigger room, but being aware at the time that the reason I was getting this stuff was that we had to move because mum was dying. Right. It was a bit of a strange. Yeah, so it is. That is horrible position to be in. Yeah. And you moved house at the same time as that was going on. Yeah. And she she passed away. Um, I mean, do, do you, like, obviously it's a lot earlier than it happens to a lot of people I mean do you think it had a kind of a, how, what do you think it, it had an effect on I think it had um, it meant I certainly had to grow up a lot faster than I would have it, I, it's, it kind of gives me you've got this defined point of you can say well I guess that's where my childhood ended I was sort of my dad very nearly had a nervous breakdown in the December after she died um, he came down with sort of terrible migraines and was basically bedridden for about three weeks, which meant I spent three weeks having to get me and my younger sister sort of fed and up and ready for school and out of the house um, in that same year. And I think it's certainly had a knock-on effect with relationships and things. And I think as boys, a lot of us kind of define our relationships by the relationships you see at home. And as a 12 year old, the relationship I saw at home was that my mother was somebody that was sick and needed help doing things, and then she wasn't there. Uh, and I think that's had a knock on effect on the relationships that I don't have as an adult. <laughs> right, in that what you see what women as people to save? No, or in the, people I who won't be there? In, no, no, just in that I don't really know what I'm doing. 
All right, oh, so you yeah, didn't have anything just, modeled. Didn't, I didn't, I didn't really have anything to model it. Okay. Because my dad, I mean, my dad didn't go out and meet anybody else. My dad's still single, and as far as he's concerned, he's still married because he's a very, he's quite a devout Christian and has this strong belief in an afterlife. So, um, so he can't so he, see anyone else because he'd he be being unfaithful. Yeah, and I think he just doesn't want. I'm not sure if he doesn't want to or if he can't or if he's not sure how to, or if it's just been so long that he's not really got a clue. But because I had nothing to model it on, I'm not... Yeah, not... You don't know? It never really had right. worked. You're right, yeah. right. That's an interesting observation. <laughs> I mean, it, I think it's something you can learn any time. Yeah. And it's... You're certainly somebody that has a hell of a lot like to offer as a partner. I, I got. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but is it like that it's hard for you to work out how to initially instigate like a, a, a kind of any kind of connection with someone? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't. You know, that could be for many reasons. I don't yeah. necessarily think anyone knows that 100. No, no. But I, yeah, I think is. I think it's partly. It's partly to do with the not having anything to model it on. It's also because of the job. It's because of the jobs I've done where I haven't had time to go out. That's not helped, and not really having much of an income also doesn't help because it means if you're worried about where the next meal's coming from a lot of the time you can't really make plans to go out right and it's just yeah. kind of a sort of mishmash of different things for sure i think that's something people really forget yeah. about one of the things that people who are poorer uh one of the things they don't have access to is like relationships as yeah. easily for so many reasons it's like it's it's not that horrible cliche that women want you to spend money on them. They don't necessarily want that, but you, you know you need to get your bus fare to yeah, get to the place. You need to get out of the house. You need to get <laughs> to the location. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Well, we've got we're going we're going away to Edinburgh this month. Uh, <laughs> next month, let's see. And happens. I'll have some money because I haven't right, paid rent this right. month. So. There you go. <laughs> you had to sort of grow up quickly, and yeah. you, you didn't have that kind of modelling at home. And you like, like you say. Your dad was is a is a strong Christian. Was he a strong Christian <coughs> when your mum got sick, or was that as a result? Of he that was or? he was a strong Christian when my mum got sick. I mean, the way they'd met was my mum was an officer in the Salvation Army in the town, right? And he was a bandsman, right? In the Salvation Army, an officer is what they call their clergy. So she was like part of the local clergy, okay? And uh, he was he was a member of the church. So they'd met through through religion, kind of thing. So it was always a very strong presence in the home. The first time, or the only time that I did bring a girlfriend home, when we went upstairs, I was told in no uncertain terms that God was watching and um, not to do anything that would displease him, which, yeah, that's not helpful either. I reckon that's, that's, <laughs> that's yeah, right. That's a big part of, yeah. of that. Yeah, shame's always awkward, however it comes. I mean, it yeah. doesn't even have to just come from religion. I think there's plenty of ways. I think when I think about my childhood, I wasn't brought up by religious people, but I certainly got a lot of shame about uh, relationship side of things from my mum in the way that she talked to me. So yeah. that's always a bit of a, an unuseful thing to get. But, uh, but you were like growing up in a Christian household. Yeah. I mean, are you a Christian? 
No, not anymore. <laughs> no, not really. I, was, I mean, when I was younger, I was. I, I, I went through the classic sort of boy stages of things that I wanted to do when I grew up, which, looking back now, would, uh, would be really weird choices for me. When I was really little, I wanted to be a policeman. <laughs> then I, then I, that is a weird choice. Then I wanted to be a soldier. Um, but I didn't just want to be a soldier, I wanted to be an army chaplain. Wow. And then I wanted to design spaceships. And then I became a musician. Well, the, the design spaceships bit fits m most with, with why, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah, with who you yeah. are. That makes the most sense. I mean, I mean, you're kind of against both the first two categories now, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be a soldier or a policeman. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've come a long way. Yeah. For sure, in your life, right? So you, but you were a Christian growing up. Yeah. When did you stop believing in God? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and to be honest, I'm not... I can't really pick a point where I stopped believing in God. And I'm not entirely sure if I've stopped altogether believing in God, but what I have stopped believing in is religion. So I think there's room for the idea of there might might be a God, but if there is, I don't think it's any of the ones that are depicted in any of our religions. Right. Again, we agree on yeah. this. <laughs> and I, I certainly, I can't see, there, see room for there being a God that's all-powerful, all-just, all-loving, and cares about us because if he's all by definition if there's a god that's all powerful then and all just then why is there so much horrible shit that yeah. goes on in the world right. um, and the fact that that goes on means that either he's not all just and all, all loving or he's not all powerful or she it whatever is not all powerful and therefore is it an entity that's really deserving of the kind of worship and devotion that religious people give it. Right. But there might be some kind of creator that sparks the Big Bang and evolution or whatever, but they're largely irrelevant. They're asleep at the wheel, so... <laughs> right. Agreed. Or they don't... I think... Or, they, or their, their aims, their in, that what they care about has nothing to do with us. Yeah, yeah. Like, or, like, you know, our, our, our pain is, is either part, you know, it's just a, maybe a, a part of the necessity of whatever they're trying yeah. to do. It's like it's so impossible to sort of define what 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 the purpose is of anything. Yeah, the idea I mean, of them caring about you as an individual right. person is just nonsensical. Right. Another thing that religion is 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 hierarchies, is institutions, is 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 everything that like an anarchist is against. As yeah. Well. So that's it's 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 just Father Chris, the Santa Claus myth but for children is there's somebody watching watching over you all the time and be good and do as you're told and if you're good and do as you're told when you die you'll get this big reward and a lot of it is just to keep us under control and make sure that we do as we're told it's no coincidence that the hierarchies of all these religions are so rich and are so powerful right. that's the point right Again, I agree. So this is one of them interviews where it's just me going, yeah, right, absolutely. But your dad is a believer. Yeah. I mean, is he happy that you're not? I don't think so. <laughs> we don't We don't really talk about it very much. But, and he hasn't asked me for a while 
what I believe, but I, I think you kind of gets that actually I don't don't believe any bit. And I've, I mean, I haven't been to church with him or anything for years. So and family's quite important to you, right? Would you say? Yeah. Because I mean, I guess that's part of what happens when you lose a member of your family yeah, yeah, at yeah. a young age. Yeah, yeah. Fa- family's quite important to me, um, but we kind of agree to disagree on a lot of things. Perfect, a uh, perfect kind of attitude to have, like within anarchy. Yeah. I, reckon. I mean, isn't that the, that's the <laughs> that's the ideal that you can coexist with people who don't agree with you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Apart from when he, he'll sometimes express fairly sort of strong right-wing views. Um, I think the problem is because he reads the da- he buys the Daily Mail for the TV guide, <laughs> and I think sort of abs- absorbs the articles by osmosis. So sometimes, like, quite often, me and both me and my sister will find ourselves pulling him up on something that he's read in the Daily Mail and he's start spouting. It's like, well, no, this this is what the Daily Mail says, but this is what's actually going on. Right. That's the, yeah, that's something I, I guess, for all, like, I've had certain complications in my own childhood and upbringing. One, one, one of the few things that I never have to negotiate with is kind of disagreeing politically with either of my parents right. really both of them are pretty much around my area of yeah. thinking you know with slight different gradients or whatever and they you know there's disagreements here and there but generally speaking yeah I mean I don't, I don't know your mum but I can't see your dad being nah. particularly far to the right nah, no, <laughs> yeah me and my dad yeah pretty much agree on most politics I mean he just occasionally uses unfortunate words because he's 90 years yeah, old yeah, uh, <laughs> but I mean unfortunate words I don't know that makes it sound much worse than it is no I mean <laughs> it, it, it'll be terms that when he was younger they were the correct ter- they were the correct term to use they yeah. were the less disparaging right, right, term exactly to use right now. and that's it and there's there's no I mean and he'll, he'll 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 he's fine with being brought up on that stuff as well I mean my yeah, my mum is uh yeah, politically she's kind of yeah definitely left wing. She was a social worker and yeah. and all of that stuff. She would definitely describe herself, I think, as a socialist, which I'm not, but uh, I, I broadly can sympathise yeah. with. I guess you don't feel like you need to change him, though. I guess too much. I mean, he doesn't hurt anybody. I guess that. I mean, no, I, no, I don't think he hurts. And sometimes, like, it can, it can be a bit embarrassing. Right. It feel like act in public in a way that I would consider sort of racist or a bit derogatory towards people it can be a bit embarrassing and and most of the time if you explain stuff to him he kind of agrees but then wants to carry on doing exactly the same thing anyway because he doesn't want to be told what to do right Um, but I suspect the not being told not wanting to be told what to do may well be part of where my anarchism comes from anyway right no yeah I know what you mean yeah, sometimes I wonder that myself, you know. Yeah. <laughs> is this the most logical kind of way of thinking politically or is it just the one that best suits my uh, not liking being yeah. told what to do? <laughs> Although, I mean, I like to make systems even though I don't like systems. You're a bit like that, I guess, because you produce music and you're quite organised and sort of structured in, ha- in your life, right? Yeah, yeah, to a certain extent. Right, te- Technical systems that get a job done, um, yeah, they make sense. They make sense to me, yeah. um, and I haven't got a problem with that. Sort of 
systems of making things happen rather than systems of making people do what you want. Right, I think. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Again, uh, I agree. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with systems in themselves and anybody that would think that, like, an anarchist society wouldn't need certain systems just to make things work yeah. is, like, kidding themselves. Right, the, the, but those are the two misconceptions I think people have the most about anarchy. The first one is that they think that anarchy means chaos and just yeah. destroying everything and doesn't have any kind of sense of rebuilding afterwards yeah and the second one is that people think that it means that there'll be no systems it does not mean that there'll be no systems it just means that they would be non-hierarchical no ones. i think um with a lot of it is deliberate mistranslation over right. the years and it's <laughs> people are told that what anarchy means is without rules and actually the translation is without rulers right um Good. so there'd be rules there just wouldn't be rulers um, and i think the other the uh, with the the destroying things and not rebuilding i think the anarchist movement in itself is to blame for that right because every anarchist group that you see or get involved with will refuse to state what they see happening afterwards right most of them will say we need the, we need to get rid of this but we can't uh, the term you see is prefigure the revolution and we can't say what would happen afterwards because it would be up to individuals what happened afterwards and how they manage their lives and they're not very good at explaining that and what would be ideally what they'd say is okay we can't say what has to happen but maybe this would work right and not many seem to do that we kind of, we've got to smash the state and we've got to get rid of all this and then it'll all be great afterwards and we'll all be happy and there'll be flowers <laughs> <laughs> or there'll be flowers if you want there to be flowers I guess. yeah you're right <laughs> flowers by consent <laughs> yeah. One of the ways you came to the, the way of thinking that you have and the kind of life you've led is through, yeah. through music. Yeah. When did you first get into music? It was, I think, probably sort of summer 94. So, like, music pro properly, sort of, yeah, it would have been around the time my mum died and I started sort of listening to... There were people in my class that liked metal, so I started... Or heavy rock, it would have been at the time, so I started getting played sort of Guns N' Roses and Bon Jovi and things and the first album I bought was the first Bon Jovi album and then a little bit down the line someone played me uh, Nevermind by Nirvana and I kind of thought oh, well actually I could do this it's not that difficult and then wow okay yeah and then the fo the following I was like blown away by that album you're like oh yeah no no I, I do was, don't, don't get me wrong I was blown <laughs> away but compared by that, by that time I'd been listening to Bon Jovi and the guitar work, like Richie Sambora's guitar work is intensely technically complicated. Right, okay. Um, and the same with people like Iron Maiden, uh, all very complex musical work. And then getting played something that's basically four chords. And even, I mean, Kurt, Kurt's an underrated guitarist, but his solos were mainly, they just follow the melody line to the songs. Yeah, which is genius. Yeah. Though, but yeah. But the, so, the, the uh, guitar solo in Nevermind, like in in, uh, in, in smells like teen smells spirit. like Teen Spirit, right? Good work. That would have, I would be well annoyed with myself <laughs> for forgetting the fucking song "Smells Like Teen Spirit." But the but the guitar solo in that <coughs> is like one of my favourite solos yeah. of all time. Like when it comes back in with exactly the same like, it feels like it's got the same emotion as well as the same melody as as the uh, as the. As, as songwriters, they they were all they were really 
really in intensely talented. Not so much Dave, because Dave, obviously, Dave Grohl's obviously done sort of Foo Fighters and stuff, and is widely respected as a writer and a multi-instrumentalist now. Yeah. But in terms of their playing, Kurt and Chris Novoselic were both have both been quite underrated. Kurt's kind of touted as this songwriter. era-defining songwriter rather than being a good guitarist. Okay. Um, but a lot of the, their parts work. And if they work, it, they don't need to be mad. No, no, right. They have, they have to have the right feel right, yeah. for the song. And so you heard that music and you went, I can do this. Yeah. And then you did it. And then, then I did it, or started doing it. Uh, it took maybe... I was, I, I was in a band, my first band, I don't think we ever really played together, we just decided we were a band, and there was maybe about 12 of us that decided we were a band, but what we really meant by we're a band is that we all liked the same music and we hung out together. It was about a year before I started playing properly, and that, that was the following summer, I got hit by a car um, and broke my leg and my arm. Unfortunately, I managed to break my arm in a position which meant I would be able to play guitar with it even though it was broken. Excellent. Uh, and just spent the summer sort of trying to learn to play bass. Um, and yeah, that's when it started. And that's when I changed from wanting to design spaceships or whatever when I grew up to being a musician. And bass was your first instrument. Yeah. You play guitar as well. Yeah. And you produce music um, electronically as well, I guess. Yeah, and I've sort of started playing drums recently as well, right over the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you, you played you played drums on uh, on some stuff we did together earlier yeah. this year, on, on a cover of Beyonce. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, actually, maybe I'll put that at the end of the episode right. as an example of your production work. Although that's a bit too much my my thing rather than your thing. But so, guys. Do you see yourself, do you think of yourself as a musician? Yeah, and I have, I have sort of more and more over the past few years. For quite a while I was, I, I saw myself as I want, someone that wanted to be a musician, um, whereas now I see myself as a musician. And I think, I think a lot of that has obviously to do with the fact that for the last four years I've been making money out been making a living doing something to do with music right so it becomes much easier to say I'm a musician if my main income comes from sort of producing music and teaching other people to produce music you did sound production didn't you yeah so you're I mean technically you're a, a trained sound producer but that is a you learn music as well right technically you learn music yeah well, mu music theory right. and by default you end up playing the instruments unless you unless you're at a college where there's a defined there's a performance course and there's a production course and those that are on production courses don't have to play because you're producing performance things, which we weren't, we were just a production course and if you wanted someone to play an instrument then you had to pick up an instrument and do it yourself. Uh, and with, with electronic music the whole dif distinction between being a producer and being a musician I think is blurred anyway. For sure. I mean it's just, it's a, it's a different kind of uh, instrument but it's yeah. still an instrument, right? Yeah. And I, I, I was an instrumentalist before I was a producer. I right. started recording because I wanted to record the stuff I was writing rather than recording because I wanted to record and then just falling into the music side of things. 
And you're playing a bit more music recently. Sometimes at Stand Up Tragedy, you're going to be playing something with us in Edinburgh. Yeah, um, yeah, been... I don't know what yet. But yeah, I mean, like, are you going to get a band together? I'd like, I'd like to. It's getting a band together, especially down here in London, is a is a massive financial commitment. Right. Um, <laughs> I know. Also, I mean. I'm not not quite sure how I'd want it to work, and I've I've had a couple of stabs at it, and it's not really worked out. But if I didn't have to worry, now that I'm in a better position with the hours I work, if I then had the money to start getting something together, then I'd like to get something together. But I haven't written anything new in a while, so yeah, you used to make stuff under the name Stillbirth, Stillbirth, Stillbirth Machine. Machine, which is a great name. Yeah, I mean, it's an it's a, it's a it's an aggressive name. Yeah. Um, but it's it's definitely a, a yeah, I, I, I can see it making the kind of on a poster for a, for a, for the right festivals yeah if, if you're gonna have a name like that it kind of it ties you to a certain image and a certain sound and because I haven't finished anything in so long I'm not sure that if I finish stuff now it would quite fit that. right well you're a different person yeah yeah so the, that that name's kind Stillbirth of Stillbirth Machine is a young man's uh, band name really. yeah yeah I mean it's <laughs> in it's, a weird way it's the name of an HR Geiger painting and it's not particularly a pleasant HR Geiger painting right. either is doesn't sound like no, it's, it's kind be. of a like a vagina with some legs coming out of it and this tube with just loads of like dead babies coming out of the tube and it's it's not yeah it's nice <laughs> yeah definitely definitely an aggressive young man's yeah do you think you, do you think you've sort of lost that that aggressive young man's thing i mean I, i'm not saying you shouldn't have done no I, <laughs> I think i wouldn't say i've lost it i think it might it's probably more refined and more focused i think the stillbirth machine thing it was just it was pick an offensive name, right. pick an offensive image and use that. So, yeah. And I wouldn't, very I don't think I are on that side. But it, I think so. it happens to punks, doesn't it? Like, you, like, they make music for long enough and they stop kind of making punk music. Yeah. I mean, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, I love the Mekons and they started out, like, doing punk music, but then they become, now they're pretty much a country and western band. Yeah. And that's, that's fine. I think you have to kind of develop as, a, as musicians and stuff. And I, I think... You can't keep on expressing the young man's angst, can you? Cause no, but, you I mean, there's only so there's only so long you can go on for just sort of playing three bar chords and sh- shouting about like, I don't know girls and work, I guess. Girls and work, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the last question that I ask people is: Do you have anything to plug? Do I have anything to plug? I don't think so. Not at the moment. Oh yeah! If you're listening, you could um, you could go to the Stand Up Tragedy crowdfunding campaign. Oh yeah, but God! I can't remember what the link is. I don't even know if this will come <laughs> out before. I'll have to make, it, make sure it does. Have a good but if, if it doesn't, you can go to a show. But yeah, I've not got anything to plug at the moment. Fair enough. I mean, sometimes people use it as a kind of excuse to sort of say something general about the world. So because some people have done that, I feel I have to give everyone the opportunity now. Um, I don't think so. I think we've talked enough about anarchy. Right. I suppose I could plug. And me. anarchists can't really promote anarchy, right? No, no. <laughs> I suppose I could plug my sound engineering expertise. If you produce music or you want to learn how to produce music, then you could 
look at my website, which is stephenharvey.me.uk. It's Stephen with a PH, but that's about it. Cool. Well, the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Alright? Goodbye, audience. Bye. Of course, me and Harv are already up at the Edinburgh Festival and we're running stand-up tragedy every night, 7.30 at the Banshee Labyrinth. Check out www.standuptragedy.co.uk for more details. If you want to help me make the tragedy happen, please consider donating to the PayPal button on that account because it's hard work getting all this together this year for me as a gamble i don't know if it's gonna pay off but certainly i am doing it i have no choice now this is what is happening and the shows are going to be great and as mentioned harv is going to be performing some music up there currently he's scheduled for the 3rd the 12th and the 15th of august if you want to hear a 10 minute set of tragic songs by him as promised in the episode, I'm putting the track that Half produced and played drums on at the end of this episode. So you can hear me singing a cover of Beyonce's Halo, which we put together as part of my open EP, which was an EP of different collaborations with different producers, which you can find and download for free at soundcloud.com forward slash the hyphen day and if you want to see a bit more getting better acquainted you can see that from the 18th to the 22nd of august at 3 15 p.m at the royal oak you can find getting better acquainted on twitter at uba podcast you can find it on facebook or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted. Remember those walls we built? Well, baby, they're tumbling down. They didn't even put up a fight. They didn't even make a sound. I found a way to let you in, but I never really had a doubt. Standing in the light of your halo, I got my angel now. It's like I've been awakened. Every rule I had you breaking It's the risk that I'm Through my darkest night You're the only one that I want Think I'm addicted to your life I swore I'd never fall again But this don't even feel like falling Gravity can't forget 
Yeah. 